we're so proud of our graduates, we wanted you to see that again. So, and we added a few things as well, but we just believe they've gotten the short end of the stick this year in so many ways. So we're grateful for them. And if you know some of those graduates, you should congratulate them or send them an email or drop them a text. It's really good to have you in the room. We're really grateful for that. If you're watching online at home, we're really glad that you are there and staying safe. And uh, as we get ready to get into a different message series and a, a different message that actually has been rewritten about three times this week, um, what I'd like to do is just usher us into a moment corporately as a time of lament. Lament is a word that we don't know much about. Uh, lament doesn't mean complaining, uh, although some of us maybe perceive it that way. But the biblical understanding of lament means this, that we recognize what's happening and we have deep sorrow over it and around it. And I don't know about you, but as the last two weeks have unfolded, um, we find ourselves saying once again in this year, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is going on. And we wonder uh, what the end would look like or what next would unfold to be. But as the people of God, as we try to discern what is happening in our times, the very first place that we want to stop and pause is this moment of lament. It means that we see the loss that is occurring. It means that we see uh, the injustices that are occurring. We see the sadness some families are dealing with in such ways that we have never, some of us, have never had to go through ourselves. And we stand in solidarity with all who are losing, with all who are dealing with injustice. And we stay in that spot. We, we live out what the Apostle Paul said, that for those who weep, for those who mourn, we mourn with them. It's the nature and the context of the body of Christ, that when one part hurts, all of us hurt. And so we stand together in that moment. Before we rush to judgment, before we rush to complaining, before we rush to solutions, or before we rush to, rush to some political view that we have, or, or anything else, we stop and we observe and we say together, we see it. And when we see it, we grieve. And I hope you're grieving. I hope you're grieving. I hope you watch what's occurring. And whichever place in the spectrum you find yourself. I hope it keeps you awake at night. I hope it pokes at you. I hope it gnaws at you. I hope you wrestle with why and what and how do we move forward. I hope that is the case because in that spot, we believe God's spirit intersects and we find a way forward. It's not the first time our country has been in this place, but it might be one of the last times if the people of God can find a way forward. And so we lament. So lament means this. We'll have a moment of silence here in just a moment, and then I'll, I'll voice a corporate prayer of lament for all of us here in the room and those online. Lament means that we look at the brokenness of the world and we do not shrink back from it. We see it for what it is. We recognize it. We feel the pain that is there, and we sit with it. And this lament isn't uh, an angry fist, nor is it a complaint. It is, Lord, we see the mess that is this world, and we're ready to be in that spot for a bit. Unless we're able to lament, 
then we have no business prescribing. We have no business with messing about with solutions. Lament means that we understand what's happening. And we ask God's wisdom while we lament. So let's do that together. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. Lord, as we enter into this posture of lament, we ask in these moments of silence ahead of us that your spirit would speak to us in powerful ways and we grieve with those who grieve and our hearts are broken and we confess that now. Lord, as we begin these thoughts and prayers of lament individually, we also do so corporately as a body. People present in this room and many at home, we ask that you would draw us together as one and that we would express that our hearts are breaking, that we see pain and struggle and injustice Lord, I'm confident and I'm certain that there are among each one of us a different slice of injustice that burdens us, a different perspective about it, a different understanding. And we believe that so many of these come directly from your own heart, Lord. This is what we want. We want our hearts to be broken by what disturbs you, by what breaks your heart, Lord, by what you are grieving over. That's what we want to grieve for. We want your heart. And we pray that as we look at the mess that this world is in, that we are in, we pray that we would acknowledge that it is not something apart from us, that we are in it, we are involved in it. Sometimes, Lord, we are just complicit, allowing it to occur in our presence. Sometimes... We are active, bringing it about this brokenness. And sometimes we are simply unaware. Lord, we pray for an awareness that only can come from you.
that you are sovereign, all-knowing. We pray that that awareness would come through the power of your spirit and that you would allow our hearts to be shaped first and foremost by your compassion for all people. Lord, before we rush to solutions and for prescribing and, and our opinions and our perspectives, help us to sit in lament, to feel the pain that you feel, to know the brokenness that exists in this world. While it doesn't surprise you, it yet it still grieves you. And we pray that we would then, eventually, ultimately respond by being your hands and your feet. But today, Lord, we see it. We do not shrink back from it. We will not pretend it's not there. We will not write it off. We will not minimize it. We will see it for what it is. And so would you break us over it? Lord, we declare our dependence on you for all things, including this. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Collectively, we ask for this. And we say together, amen. Amen. And my hope is that as the weeks unfold, that we have eyes to see and ears to hear What's happening around us is, is unique and unprecedented. And now we're using that word again in a very powerful way for the second time this year. What's unfolding in what appears to be something like 650 U.S. cities and, and now in something like a dozen to, or more countries, we've never seen anything like it. Something is afoot. May we discern what God is up to. It's interesting as we were wrapping up our series in Philippians and moving into launching this series this this week. We I've named it "Return the Way Home" because you know we, we were all going to come back together. And back when the the pandemic and the lockdown kicked off in March for us, I, I imagine what that Sunday back would be like, and it's very different than what I imagined. You know, I, I didn't imagine it would be in, in fits and starts or small groups here or small groups there, and, and I kind of just thought we would all come back. And as I began pondering that and how different it is than I had imagined, it made me think about the exiles. Now, there's a, a moment in history for the people of Israel, the Israelite nation, when they came home, they came back after exile. Some of them dispersed. Some of them had been uh, enslaved in Babylon. And, and kings, by the, the virtue of God's goodness, began to send the exiles back home. And there are about four or five books in our Old Testament that describe this and paint a picture and some prophets that talk about it. And when they come back, they come back in groups. They don't all come back at once. And I thought, I bet there's a few things for us to learn from these uh, moments of exile and returning home for us as a people. But not a lot of us spend a bunch of time in the Old Testament picking it apart. And I thought it'd be good if we had some context for what's occurring with these exiles and them coming home. So the best place to start for context when it comes to our understanding of the Israelite nation is at the very beginning of the Israelite nation. And it starts in Genesis 12. This is before it's a nation, before there is a nation. God 
calls a man. His name is Abraham. At the time, he's called Abram. And this is what God says to him. I will make you into a great nation. And I will, say it with me, he will what? I will bless you. Important, pay attention to that. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And then he says this. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Say that with me. And all peoples on earth will be blessed. And then I began to watch the news, pay attention to what's occurring. And I thought, this isn't happening at all, is it? It doesn't seem to be happening. In so many places, it doesn't seem to be happening. This promise that God had given to Abraham seems like the opposite is happening, that, that curses are occurring. And, and it doesn't matter to me what your perspective is on the, on the current events. This is why I say I hope your heart is breaking over something, for goodness sakes, over somebody's inability to either experience justice or love or mercy or grace or God's presence. And we all come from a variety of different viewpoints on that. But when we look at what God promises to Abraham and all peoples, it's a great, great phrase there in the Hebrew, all nations, all tribes, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This isn't just about Jewish people. And it's not just about the Israelites. Paul makes it clear in the New Testament that we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, that God began to work through one family that became a nation that eventually was brought back home, but that we, as followers of Jesus, have been grafted into that very same tree, that very same vine, that very same growing and living and flourishing thing. And the promise is not just for Abraham and his family. It's for me and for you that all peoples on earth will be blessed through us. And it's just not as prevalent as I think it should be. And so before we then grasp what's happening here in Genesis chapter 12, I don't know if you've read much of Genesis, but a lot happens in Genesis 1 through 12. In fact, there's a lot of history that leads up to this moment where, where God is trying to do this thing he's going to work in and through Abraham and his family. So I thought it'd be good if we started at the very beginning. And so let's do that. Genesis 1, verse 1. This is the very beginning of the Hebrew Bible, the very beginning of the Torah. Genesis 1, chapter 1. In the what? Right, that's where we're going to start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so nothing was there, and God then created something, and then something was there. And the author tells us what something looked like. Now, the earth was formless, it was empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures. And what happens at the very beginning is curious to me because God is involved and he's there and he's doing his thing and he's creating, but it is formless. In other words, it is completely without form. It's, it's confusing. It's amorphous. It just has no shape to it at all. He's already made it. And this is what it is. And it's empty. It is vacant. There's nothing there. And there is darkness. And that's all that exists. Another great translation of the Hebrew sentiment in these three words, that there was misery, sorrow, indistinguishable ruin. Does that sound familiar to you? Have you watched the coverage? Have you paid attention to what's going on? 
It sounds like our current circumstances. This is what Genesis says. There was disorder, there was emptiness, and there was darkness. And don't forget, God made this. Before this, there was nothing. Now he has created this, but it is just the starting point. But that's not all that was there. There's something else that was there. And you read it in that verse, God's presence. In fact, God's presence was there. And God's presence was the spirit of God hovering over the waters. The very first verses of Genesis 1 when the author refers to God, it's in the plural. The Hebrew word is plural. In other words, all of God was there, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. All three are together, and they are all eternal. They always have been, and they always will be. Jesus didn't show up when he became a baby. He was there at the very beginning. He was there in creation, and Scripture makes that clear. And the Spirit of God specifically was hovering over the waters. And in this moment, in the disorder, in the emptiness, in the darkness, God's presence is there, and he steps in. And when he steps in, things begin to happen. Now, you know a little bit about the story of Genesis and the order of creation and how things appear and what occurs. But what occurs is broadly this. God takes the disorder and the emptiness and the darkness, and he makes out of it order and beauty and light. When he begins to do this, God says, well, let there be light, first thing he creates. And then he separates the light from the darkness. And then he creates some of the lights that you see, the stars and the the sun and the moon that reflects the light. And then he begins to separate the waters and he creates the bodies of water. And then he begins to speak life. And as he does all of these things, the scriptures say, and it was good. And he begins to create the grasses that grow. And the grasses spring up from the ground. And then he creates these things called fruit trees. Unbelievable. What a concept. This thing is amazing. How many of you have already tasted some of the the fresh strawberries that are being grown? Have you had one yet? Yeah, yeah. We we made some sauce out of one, poured it over some angel food cake, and and we tasted it. We just put it in our mouth, and we said the very same thing that God said in Genesis 1. Oh, that is good. That's what we said. Sit in our kitchen. It was good. God creates these fruit trees, and the fruit grows. And he does this amazing thing. He takes the seeds that are needed for the next fruit, and he puts it inside that fruit. And so it grows with next already imprinted. And he does it again and again and again. And then he speaks life in other places. And as he does that, the waters begin to teem with creatures that are moving. And across the ground, there are creatures that are moving. And God begins to create this place, this world where things are swimming and walking and roaming and flying. And the earth is teeming with beauty and life. And when God does this, he looks at all of it and he says, same thing we said in our kitchen, God saw it and he saw that it was what? Good is such a, Not good word for this. When God says it's good, what it means in the Hebrew is that this was best, that it was beautiful, that it was bountiful, that it was all that was needed. He was creating a place where life could flourish 
And this flourishing happens even when we don't even expect it to. You've seen this happen this spring, haven't you? You've paid more attention this spring than most springs because you've been home more. And maybe you went out and planted yourself. Maybe you dug something up and put some good soil down. And you saw something spring up and you paid attention to this new life because your focus, our focus collectively has been so much on death and disease and destruction. And so life means something different to us now. And we see these things spring up. And we believe that we live in a world, sun and water, where life begins to flourish and grow. And we see it, and it is good. Now, the Holy Council, this Holy Trinity, sees that it is good, and they want to share it. They want to share it with others. And so they have an idea. Genesis tells us about their idea. This is their idea. And then God said, plural, collectively, together, let, how many of us? Let us, not just one, let us make mankind. It's a great word, mankind. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Now, the Hebrew word for mankind there is maybe one that you're familiar with. How do we say that in our language? Adam, that's right. In Hebrew, if you were trying to transliterate it, you might say Adam. And we've taken this Hebrew word, mankind, and we've turned it into a name. But it refers to this individual that would step into the place of God in the context of creation. This is why God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit says, let us make mankind in what? Our our image. In our likeness, they will be like us, this race. Now, we've translated this Adam or mankind. Probably a better translation in the Hebrew would be human. Let's make a human, a human in our image, in our likeness, Adam. And not only that, we want this human, this Adam, We want this person to be our representative, oversee, Genesis says, and care for creation. Uh, There's all kinds of words in various English translations like subdue and and rule. And essentially the the idea, the the concept is communicated in Genesis 1 is we want this person, this, this Adam, this humankind, male and female, to engage in creation and help it to do the very thing that God did, where he took disorder and he made order, where he took darkness and he brought light, where he took that which was chaotic and indistinguishable ruin and bring about goodness and beauty, a place where life can flourish. This is what Genesis 1 tells us. So we like what we've done so far. Now we want to create someone to share it with us. And so they do. They do. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, both of them, male and female, all of us, he created. And as he does so, he gives these Adams, these humans, mankind, this ability to create life and flourish. In fact, it says in Genesis, we want you to be flourishing. We translate it, be fruitful and multiply. And we want you 
to create life as well, just like God did. And then this word is so key. This is so important. This little statement that's in Genesis 1, 28, you almost overlook it if you're not careful. And then God, Elohim, the Hebrew, blessed them. This word blessed is really the entire theme of the Old Testament. It's this idea of a relationship that goes beyond, I see you and you see me. It goes beyond us coexisting together. It goes far beyond even understanding one another. When God blesses them, he's saying, I am with you. We're in this together. I'm going to be, give you my favor as we move forward together. I'm going to empower you and help you along the way. You're going to do so with my energy and with my power, and we will do this together. The word is a powerful word. It's barak. Barak. Say it with me. Barak. This is the word blessing in the Old Testament. And it paints a picture that God is, well, the actual literal meaning that God is kneeling in front of us. And he's saying, I'm with you. You can't do this alone. We will do this together. That's the literal picture. The spiritual metaphorical picture is that God grants his favor. He gives his blessing in this way. And every story in the Old Testament about every relationship is about one of two things. Barak, blessing, or distance and enmity, or cursing, being opposed it's about one of the two, almost every one. And so you read about Abraham and his family and Jacob and his favoritism. You read about Joseph and how he engages with his family and blesses them when they finally come to Egypt and so on and so forth. Every story is about that. God is saying in Genesis 1 that this is going to form the fabric of your relationships. And this blessing, being highly favored, first happens between God and Adam, humankind, all people. And then it will happen between us. But it first has to happen in this way, if you're going to know how to move forward. This is what God is saying. This is how empowering occurs. This is how you know when you watch the news and you feel the burden of God's heart, what it means to respond with his love and with his help. Probably the, the best word that is connected to Barak in our Old Testament is the word for love or loving kindness. It's the word has said. And it describes what will eventually become known as the understanding of how we're tied together. God's loving kindness and our loving kindness together. The best corollary in our New Testament is the word, the verb, the understanding of love that we use, agape. It is a tangible, practical expression that always shows up in one way or another. It's not a feeling, it's not an infatuation, it's not a notion, it's not a hope, it's not even an aspiration. It is a tangible expression of who God is to his people and who is he to his people. Well, it says in Genesis 1, God bless them. You will have his favor. Now, when you take what is happening in creation, that God has now created a place where life and love can flourish, and now he has designated a representative, Adam, humankind, to do that very same thing where life and love can flourish. 
then all of a sudden, Genesis 12 begins to make sense. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is what you're called to do. I don't know what your job is. I don't know what your role is. I don't know what your education is, but this is what you're called to do. This is what I'm called to do. And he will bless all peoples on earth through me. Whatever conversation I'm in, wherever neighborhood I live, whatever family I happen to get born into. How many times have you wanted to either bless or curse the family that you've been born into? And all people on earth will be blessed through you. All nations, all tribes, all families. Another great translation of that Hebrew word, all peoples. They will be blessed through you. So what would that look like if you did that? How would you move? What would you do? How would you forgive? How would you love? Where would you draw the line? How would you stand? What voice needs to be heard from you? Look, I'm neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet. But something is happening in our culture that is unique and different right now. And God desperately wants and is calling us to stand in the gap. Which gap is he calling you to? If you stay in a place of lament for a while and you get something of the heart of God to understand what is broken in this world, what will it mean then for you to live out not only God's blessing in your life, but understanding that this blessing doesn't just come to you for you to receive and bask in and enjoy, but it will be from you that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What does that mean? What does that look like? How will you live that out? I'm confident that what the world needs more than your opinion, more than your discernment, more than your decision about what is broken and wrong and how other people should behave, what it needs is your ability to step into brokenness and mess and bless it in ways that God does with you and your mess with grace and mercy and justice. I mean, you'll notice in Genesis 1 through 12, there's no, not even a mention of justice yet. There's not even an understanding of, because the, the brokenness has not reached such a pervasive way. In the early stages of Genesis, it is all about what it means to be a blessing in these powerful ways. What will unfold as history unfolds is this understanding and this need for justice and righteousness and the promise of scripture is it would flow like a mighty roaring stream. So what does that look like for me and for you? I'm confident that as it unfolds, it will look like agape love, the hands and feet of Jesus in powerful and significant ways. It's gonna look like you and I are inconvenienced like we're doing things that we haven't done before, loving people we haven't loved before, that we're seeing people with the heart of God and the eyes of God that before have either, either been invisible to us or inconsequential to us or even worse, ugly and unlovable to us. 
That's what it looks like. And it's so important that we live this now. This is the, the culmination of all things. This is where it's headed. God's promised that, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through us, all nations, everyone. If we learn what this is like, then it's practice for what is to come. The book of Revelation gives us this picture, okay? Here's the picture. John, the, the apostle, gets a vision on this island all by himself. He sees heaven before him. He says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every, what? Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And these people before the throne from every nation, every family on earth, they say with loud voices, salvation belongs to our God. He is the only one who sits on the throne. And they're all there. And some of us will be surprised at who's present. This is what it means. So as this moment in history unfolds before us, my hope is that you will wrestle deeply with this question. What does it mean for to take this word blessed that our culture is co-opted and made nice and made really completely inconsequential, but that yet God coined in the first pages of scripture to mean something that is powerful, that we would come alongside others, that we would allow them to feel the power, the presence, and the mercy of God. How can we bring that to all peoples? In other words, who is God calling you to, to love in that way? And what would it look like? This problem in our culture is an old one. It's been around a while. Martin Luther King Jr., the, the voice of the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Bernice King, his daughter, tweeted this week, wanted everyone to know without mistake that even though he is a, a cultural hero now and, and very endeared to most people, he wasn't in the 50s and 60s. He was hated by the FBI, called one of the most dangerous men in America. The night before he was killed, he found himself in Memphis. He was there to support a group of people that had been uh, striking, and he gave a speech. This is part of it. to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. I left Atlanta this morning and then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats I talk about the threats that were out. Yeah. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? <laughs> well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Yeah. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. 
I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory. I think he knew, don't you? I think he knew. I think the question that ought to poke us in the middle of the night when we wake up and we aren't sure what's becoming of the world is this one. Are we of any use to a world that is broken? Are we here to just take up space and live our life and do our thing and enjoy the good gifts that God has given? Are we any use to a world that is broken? From the beginning of time, God said... I'm creating you for a purpose. God takes darkness and disorder. He takes unimaginable chaos and he brings order and love in a a world where life can flourish. What happens around us? Does life indeed flourish? Do people feel God's blessing or do they feel the condemnation and the hate of those who don't understand different? What happens in our presence? God has said, and I will bless all people through you. This blessing is more than a a passing comment or a goodbye. It is us enabling people to understand who they were made and why they were made, that they were made, in fact, in the image, in the likeness of an all-powerful God who loves them more than they could ever ask or dream or imagine, and that his mercy covers everything they could ever, ever have done. This is why Jesus, among his friends, This is why he, as he was sharing this last meal with him, held up bread. And he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. And my body is broken because you need grace. You need salvation. You need mercy. You need to be welcomed back in. You need to be reconciled to the Father. And then he held up a cup and he poured it out and he passed it among his friends. And he said, my blood is given to you. It's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. When we take communion... We do several things. We look back, mercy and grace of God poured out for us. We celebrate the death and the burial of resurrection of Jesus. We think about now that we live and walk in his mercy, but then we also look forward to Revelation, this moment when all of God's children gather around a banquet table, all colors, all socioeconomic classes, everyone is gathered, and we enjoy this meal together. In fact, Jesus said... I'm going to hold off on this meal until we're all together again. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And so now I'm going to invite you to take communion. You'll have a little more time than usual as we allow some time for our online friends to take it in their homes. In front of you is a little cup down beneath, underneath the seat. And when you peel back that little top layer, there'll be emblem of bread that represents the body of Jesus. I should warn you, the, the body of Christ won't taste as good as it normally does. 
And then you'll peel back another layer and there will be this juice that represents the blood of Jesus that covers our sins. And you'll have time to pray and to ask God, what would it mean to be a blessing to the people around me? What does the world desperately need and how can I, in my presence, how can I allow people to, that I know, that I love, that I work with in my neighborhoods to experience God's mercy and grace? Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we give you all praise and all honor. We believe that the picture that John has in Revelation is true, that it is in some ways occurring right now, that we are taking part in it, what will happen in the future, that time is nothing to you, Lord, that a thousand years is as a day. And so we ask that you would help us to lean into this reality that the banquet is already beginning and that this communion experience that we share together in this room and those at home online as we gather together and remembering Jesus, we look forward to a day when all is realized, when all will come to pass, when you have reconciled all to you, when you have indeed made all things new. Until that day comes, Lord, may you give us the burden of being your hands and your feet that we would love like you, forgive like you, strive for justice like you. Lord, give us your heart. And we ask for that now as we remember. In the name of Jesus, we pray.